Okay. I'm Alan Skorsky with my co-host Bela Sebrow and welcome to the Definitive Wrap where we discuss the news items the mainstream media just won't touch. Our first guest who's with us to launch our first show is my favorite columnist, the editor-in-chief of the Jewish News Syndicate, Mr. Jonathan Tobin. Bela, in just a few minutes, you will have the honor of giving Jonathan a proper introduction, but I want to refer to one of his recent columns titled, Do Americans Understand the Anti-Semitism Around Them? And the column begins by opening with the two-year anniversary, which was just two days ago, of the Tree of Life Synagogue Massacre in Pittsburgh, where a white supremacist gunned down 11 Jewish congregants, the worst act of anti-Semitic violence in American history. And in his column, Jonathan not only discusses the rising anti-Semitism in our country from both the right and the left, but also the politicization and the weaponizing of anti-Semitism. It's become the new calling card when activists want to smear their political opponents. Hurling insults like ginos, which stands for Jewish in name only, or kapos, which really have no place in civil discourse, or even worse, when Jewish leftists refer to Jewish Trump supporters as Hitler sympathizers. This, to me, is becoming a new anti-Semitism, where it's no longer neo-Nazis or Palestinians or leftists attacking us, and now it's becoming Jew-on-Jew -Jew attacks out of loyalty to their political ideology. I'll have more questions for our esteemed guest, Jonathan Tobin, who wrote a fantastic column about the shooting and the rise of anti-Semitism. I want to open with these comments before turning the mic over to you, Bela. Oh, hi, um, Alan. Um, so uh, as we know, attacks on Jews while praying is unfortunately nothing new to history. But there was something very unique about how the media and the world at large responded to the mass shooting at the Pittsburgh Tree of Life Synagogue. We have to remember that uh, this happened in Pittsburgh, but yet all over, not just in New York where, where I live, uh, extra patrols and security were added to shuls, yeshivas, and other Jewish institutions. So, and at the time, I remember it was a feeling of security for me, knowing that I would be protected. But at the same time, it caused a shiver down my spine, as if the powers that be know something that we don't, and that therefore we need to be protected. It, it, was, it was those mixed feelings that elicited in me the kind of reaction to explore not just the nature of this attack, but whether this is the beginning of something more. And that brings me to welcome our guest, Jonathan Tobin. It is our pleasure and our privilege to host Jonathan Tobin, Editor-in-Chief of JNS, a senior contributor for the New York Post, Newsweek, and Haaretz. Mr. Tobin, it was around the Pittsburgh shooting that I started following your articles. And the more I read, the more I became convinced that my hunch was right. Mr. Tobin, anti-Semitic incidents were on the rise before the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting. But the fact is that the anti-Semitic incidents in fact surged since then, specifically on campuses. If you remember, oh, I'm sure you remember, of course you do, uh, because you've been writing a lot about it. Um, only one month after Pittsburgh, a professor um, at Cornell, uh, sorry, at Columbia University walked into her office and found blood red swastikas and yet painted on her walls. And that wasn't the only thing. Duke University, Cornell, Penn State, University of Minnesota, I, I could go on and on. They all shared victimization of vandalism. After the massacre, 
there was much more prejudicial displays of college campuses and all over. And then it became clear that the bigotry was a reflection of the political mood of the entire country, specifically because of the weak responses from college leaders regarding hate crimes and the blaming on the president. Not only that, Mr. Tobin, but it was following the Pittsburgh shooting that we started seeing how some journalists were becoming biased. So my question to you is, how can a trained journalist be biased in their reporting of a news report by withholding information, especially investigative reporting? We're not talking about an op-ed, an opinion piece, you know? It, 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 it's it's mind-boggling. And as every American typically relies on the news to find out what's going on, if we can't trust the media to be objective, whom can we trust? Well, uh, thank you for having me on first. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you to inaugurate uh, your podcast. Um, you're asking, you're broaching two really important questions um, uh, for our listeners. Uh, one is about the nature of anti-Semitism and where the threats lie and what should we think about it and what should we do about it. And the other is the coverage of anti-Semitism and, and the media in general. Um, I think, and these two play in together because so much of the coverage um, of Pittsburgh, which as you said, we just um, observed the second anniversary of that horrific um, shooting, um, much of the coverage was immediately weaponized. It was politicized. And indeed, the, uh, much of the media's interest in it hinged not just on uh, the shock and horror of a, of a mass shooting. After all, we've had a lot of mass shootings in this country, alas. Um, in all sorts of venues, houses of worship, you name it, you know, schools, you know, uh, all sorts of awful incidents. What made this one important was that it, because the shooter was a white supremacist, an avowed white supremacist, it fit into a, a pre-existing narrative that said that um, American Jews were in danger, in a unique danger, because the far right had been encouraged and, uh, in, in essence, you know, um, allowed to, to thrive and grow and emboldened by statements made by President Trump. Right. That it was Trump's fault that Pittsburgh happened and that all violence against Jews was in some way a result of his course in course, discourse, and what were viewed as his, uh, quote-unquote, um, dog whistles to the far right, of which supposedly his statement about the neo-Nazi march in Charlottesville in August 2017 was the most egregious. Um, this was a false narrative. Uh, Trump is not an anti-Semite. He did not encourage anti-Semitism. Um, he condemned it. He's clearly the most pro-Israel, pro, you know, whether you like him or don't like him, approve of his policies in general or despise them. He's the most pro-Israel president we've ever had. His Jewish relatives, you know, his, his, his daughter became a Jew. He's got Jewish grandchildren. And in fact, his policies in many ways, not just on Israel, but in fighting anti-Semitism have been far better than his predecessors, especially when it comes to college campuses. But from the moment he became president, um, the country's leading anti-Semitism monitoring organization, uh, the Anti-Defamation League, 
took it as its mission, as it were, to pin a, an alleged rise in anti-Semitism on Trump. And that happened in the, in the month that he was inaugurated when there was a, um, a spree of um, bomb threats called into Jewish community centers around the country. And um, this was seen as this Trump did it. Trump had encouraged this. As it turned out, the bomb threats, which were, was a very serious thing and caused a lot of havoc around the country. And I have to say, I was on a speaking tour at a number of JCCs around the country when this was happening. So it really scared people. But it turned out it wasn't Trump. It wasn't even the far right. It was some disturbed teenager in Israel who did it. Uh, but the ADL never backed off of its uh, attempt to pin it on Trump. Um, but this, this became a standing narrative about both Trump and about anti-Semitism. And the attack in Pittsburgh, and then the one six months later in Poway, California, against the Chabad there, where one person was sadly killed, um, became the proof, the evidence that made it incontroversial, uh, incontrovertible that uh, Trump had enabled anti-Semitism and just to go back for a moment, and the Charlottesville quote was actually taken out of context. He hadn't said that the neo-Nazis were very fine people, but it doesn't matter. It became a, you know, it became set in cement that this was what he said and that this is what he had done. Um, and I, I can tell you even, it's to the point I, I was giving a talk once where someone asked me, well, why didn't Trump condole the Jews of Pittsburgh? Why didn't he express sympathy? And I said, he did. He actually went there. Um, but it didn't matter because people sort of believe what they want to believe. So this, this is politicized. And there are, two, there are two conclusions we should draw from this. One is, I think it's, it's entirely true that we need to be concerned about far-right extremists, white supremacists, sort of neo-Nazis, um, sort of these crazies on the right, the dwellers of the fever swamps. Um, they are probably no more numerous than they were in previous years. Um, in the pre-internet era, the internet has been the best thing that ever happened to extremists of all kinds, because whereas previously they were isolated, scattered, really had no way of communicating with each other or uh, no megaphone, the internet allowed them to create online communities and sort of uh, reinforce each other and also gave them this megaphone um, with which they can amplify their voices. So yes, extremism seems louder. It seems more threatening as a general rule, but it actually isn't. Um, and, um, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be afraid of nuts with guns. I mean, that, that is a threat. Pittsburgh happened, Poway happened. Um, there needs to be security at synagogues because these things do happen. However, um, and this is where I think where sort of sober observers have to, um, you know, sort of tell people to calm down. The notion that the United States has, either under Trump or even before Trump, uh, become an anti-Semitic country isn't so much, you know, a misleading as it's nuts. It's just not true. The ADL, for example, earlier this year uh, hyped, you know, hyped it being, you know, an understatement, there are statistics that showed a big increase in anti-Semitic incidents um, in the United States in 2019. Now, any incident of anti-Semitism is terrible. It should be condemned. It, you know, it's, it's something we're, we're upset about. But their total of 2,100 incidents 
including vandalism, which is often just children, you know, teenagers acting out, unspecified uh, harassment, um, 2,100 incidents in a country of 330 million people does not make an anti-Semitic country. You want anti-Semitism, go to France, go to walk around in Paris with a Star of David around your neck or a kippah on your head, and you'll see anti-Semitism. That is not the case in the United States. Um, American exceptionalism is still true. Jews are accepted in every corner of American society. There is nothing you can aspire to in America that you can't aspire to in, in America as a, not only as a Jew in, in your origins, but as a practicing Jew, as someone who could be Jew, a Jewish on the, in the public square. I mean, you could really be anything except a cardinal of the Catholic Church. Um, so this isn't an anti-Semitic country. This is actually a philo-Semitic country. This is a pro-Israel country on the whole, not everyone. But what this narrative about the anti-Semitic country and about Trump and Pittsburgh has obscured is the fact that there is also a thriving anti-Semitism on the left. And it's not just, well, there's right-wing anti-Semitism and left-wing anti-Semitism. And that is basic, you know, it's, it's true to say that, that yes, it can come from all quarters. And as the great scholar Ruth Weiss has said, anti-Semitism was the most successful ideology of the 20th century because it was able to, it's a virus, it was able to adapt itself and you know, attach itself to all sorts of ideologies, fascism, Nazism, communism, and then Islamism. Um, but it's, there's more to it than that. Left-wing anti-Semitism isn't just on the fever swamps. In, in the form of anti-Zionism and the BDS movement and its vast number of sympathizers, it has mainstream uh, voices. There are no mainstream voices of white supremacism, despite the fact that many on the left call anybody who supports Trump or anybody who is a conservative as a white supremacist. That's just political invective. Um, the sort of the BDS movement, left-wing anti-Semites are prominent. There is, there are members of Congress, Ilhan Omar, Rashid Talib, um, who are, who are not just, you know, crackpot members of Congress to be ignored as we've always had crackpot members of Congress. Ilhan Omar is a rock star. She's beloved in popular culture. She's, you know, on the cover of Rolling Stone. She's interviewed on Stephen Colbert on late night TV. Um, and uh, that's true of her pal, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who isn't quite you know, saying much, but is equally anti-Israel. Um, this is a faction that has real juice, as we'd say, um, in politics. So, um, and that is something that is consistently underplayed in the media. And, you know, in the column uh, that you referenced, I pointed out, you know, even those observers who are sober, who... Um, acknowledge that there is anti-Semitism uh, anti on the left and the right, are still trying to say that mainstream conservatism, uh, mainstream conservative positions about immigration or trade, or, or just support of Trump, are indications of extremism that leads to anti-Semitism. I mean, this is kind of both sidesism. This is a kind of uh, distortion of the truth that doesn't really give you the picture. Uh, the true picture is that while white supremacists have been more violent. They've created these mass shootings. Um, Pittsburgh is a unique event, and that must be laid at the, you know, at the, you know, the extreme right. Extreme left hasn't 
thank God, done something like that, although there has been tremendous anti-Semitism and a stream of anti-Semitic violence on campus, on campuses that is directly the work of the left, attacks on uh, Orthodox Jews in the greater New York area last, last year from the African-American community that is you know, incited and legitimized by the uh, uh, actions of uh, Louis Farrakhan, who is, has far more influence than anybody on the far right, hundreds of thousands of uh, supporters and members of the Nation of Islam. Um, and in, we've seen now in the Black Lives Matter movement, um, one of the more interesting things is the way these figures, these Farrakhan supporters, people like Tamika Mallory, the former head of the Women's March, um, who's an open supporter of Farrakhan, an open anti-Semite, you know, open Vogue, the latest issue of Vogue, and there's a photo spread of her and no mention of anti-Semitism. Uh, so you, you see a legitimization of hate against Jews that doesn't exist. Um, on the right. So our, mu so much of our, dis our discussion about this is distorted. So much of it is rooted in partisan bias and also in media bias because so much of the media is so politicized and view their job as not just telling the truth, not just objectively reporting the facts, or as objective as anybody can be, but to advance a specific political agenda. That is the way much of the mainstream media operates now. And that's where we are. Well, Jonathan, you said so many things that I just want to agree with, but I'll give you an example. I think right now that there is a revenge factor involved. I think that there are many on the Jewish left who really, really resented Netanyahu's uh, lack of respect, as they would put it, for Barack Obama. Uh, they saw Netanyahu's friendliness towards Mitt Romney when he was a candidate. He didn't even endorse him. He was just, it was a friendly, you know, pose with him. So I think that the Jewish left resents Netanyahu for not being nicer to Obama. They resent Donald Trump for being pro-Israel. They resent Israel for being you know, pro-Trump. And all of this just snowballs into just a massive anti-Israel, and, and they just kind of rolled everything up into one ball, where now it's very convenient, which now makes it easier for them to support a Joe Biden. And even though Joe Biden is together with J Street, it doesn't offend them, because in the end, the response always is, Israel will be fine. To them, whatever Trump has done for Israel, it's dismissed. They trivialize it as nothing more than the embassy move. You can go down a whole list of things. There was recognizing Jerusalem. There was Nikki Haley in the UN. It was never, ever calling Israel to show restraint when retaliating for terrorism. Uh, there was the threats against any university that uh, didn't uh, ban anti-BDS. He's done so much for us. When he goes to a 30,000-person rally, and he talks about support for Israel, that's a dog whistle. That's telling 30,000 people in Erie, Pennsylvania, who are not Jewish, I support Israel. And if you support me, then you're going to support Israel. I remember one of his massive rallies where he gave a three-minute you know, speech about the rise of anti-Semitism, how historically anti-Semites wanted to you know, destroy the Jews. But let me tell you, Donald Trump says, we're going to come and destroy you. You will never see a speech like that from a Democrat. Yes, at a yeshiva dinner or at a Jewish event, they'll say, we, we are opposed to anti-Semitism. They will never address or define what anti-Semitism is. They won't acknowledge the anti-Semitism in their own party because it's very easy to say we oppose anti-Semitism. Well, you know, who doesn't? So, you know, from that standpoint, I think that, you know, again, and then you mentioned uh, David Duke. Yes, to me, he's 
He's white trash. He's a knucklehead. He's been around for 30, 40 years. He's not really a threat other than the crazies who follow him, you know, who have guns, and now we have to protect ourselves in shuls. But as far as having any influence, he's not invited to any political dinners. There are no media. There's no college campus where he's welcome to. You look at the rise in influence of Islamism, of Palestinianism on college campuses, and I'm sure you have articles about Students for Justice in Palestine. That, to me, is the real threat and the real rise of anti-Semitism in this country, and it's not going away anytime soon. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that is where the, the energy for anti-Semitism in this country is. It is on the far left and not the far left. Um, um, the, the point about politics in this country vis-a-vis -vis Israel, vis-a-vis -vis the Jews, is that the two parties have basically switched identities in the last uh, generation, more, you know, the last 50 or 60 years in which the Democrats were once a lockstep pro-Israel party. Now they are deeply divided on Israel with the left um, really being um, either openly, not merely critical, but uh, very negative about Israel and not willing to support it, or openly anti-Zionist. Um, the Republicans have become the lockstep pro-Israel party um, in large measure because the political right in this country is lockstep pro-Israel and philo-Semitic, uh, the evangelical Christians who many liberal Jews distrust and dislike and are frankly prejudiced against are ardently pro-Israel. When, when Trump speaks to you know, rallies of, of non, you know, tens of thousands of non-Jews, you know, he's speaking to them. He's speaking to people who sympathize with them. You know, as far as Jews and sort of Jewish liberals, I mean, this, this goes into you know, a lot. You know, that, that's, a, that's a deep uh, issue. And um, sort of to discuss it on one foot, I think you're right um, that Jewish Democrats resented Netanyahu. Um, they're just vaguely not sympathetic to the right in Israel. They are completely disconnected from the reality of the Middle East. They're sort of stuck in a, a time warp of 30 years ago when Israel was evenly divided between left and right. They are not aware of the fact that the political left the, on the peace process has been completely discredited in Israel. Um, they are you know, not merely the minority, they, they barely exist politically because they've been discredited by the Palestinians' um, actions against peace, rejection of peace, terror wars. Um, all that has created um, you know, a situation where the left disappeared. It was replaced by a center which didn't, you know, in the three elections Israel went through in the last two years, didn't oppose Netanyahu on the Palestinian issue. That wasn't a debate about the peace process. It was just a debate about Netanyahu, whether you want him to go on forever, um, and a social issue. So American Jews are cut off from that. They don't want to hear it, um, and they know nothing about it. Um, what they are is that they are their idea of Jewish identity, and this is primarily you know, um, non-Orthodox Jews in this country, not uniformly, but most non-Orthodox Jews in this country, who make up, you know, close to 85 to 90 percent of, Ameri of the American Jewish population, either affiliated with the non-Orthodox movements or, as the Pew study of 2013 referred to them as, Jews of no religion, um, they, um, they view social justice issues as the essence of Judaism. Um, the old joke was, was that Reform Judaism is the Democratic Party platform with holidays thrown in. And that's, 
you know, that's unfair to reform Judaism. There's a lot more to it than that. But I think in terms of non-Orthodox Jews, Jews who identify as political liberals, that is what they think. Right. And Jonathan, Jonathan, we have a few yeah. minutes left. I know Bela yeah, had I a just, question she wanted to get in. Yeah, I just, uh, <laughs> we're running low on time. And I know people are talking about your article yesterday in uh, JNS. And it was actually a clever eye-opener. And one last question. Um, you certainly did not mince, mince words. You called the journalists cheerleaders. You called them out, not just withholding uh, with information, but for burying information. And as you said, it's censorship. You received uh, much backlash, uh, you state in the article, for the way you represented um, Congresswoman Cortez. Can you please tell us about that? Yeah, well, I'm sort of on one foot. Uh, there was an article, I wrote a column earlier this month about uh, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the ringleader of the squad, uh, the, the rock star leader of uh, the left, a wing of the Democratic Party. Um, about how she had been invited to an event being hosted by Americans for Peace Now, a very left-wing organization to commemorate the assassination, uh, the anniversary of the assassination uh, yeah. of the late Yitzhak Rabin. She initially accepted because, you know, sort of the left and the left, that, you know, it's a good match. But then once all of her pro-BDS friends and her colleagues and sort of her base said, no, 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 you can't honor Rabin. He's a war criminal, not a than a peacemaker, she pulled out. She wanted no part of even liberal left-wing Israelis. Right. Um, and I basically said, this is bad This is bad news for the pro-Israel community, but it's clear she wants no part of Israel. So the Times of Israel, a liberal website with a lot of readers, um, you know, did an article by their investigative reporter, I use air quotes around that, that term in, in her <laughs> case, saying, no, 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 Tobin has it wrong. Uh, AOC likes Israelis. She she knows Israelis, and now she worked for two Israelis during her twenties. And you know, as it turns out, she she spent a little time at an incubator run by a couple of you know Israeli entrepreneurs in New York. Didn't seem to have much to do with them, and you know, it was really nothing. There was nothing pro-Israel about anything she did or Jewish. And uh, then, um, as it happens, it's not listed, that, that affiliation isn't listed on our website. When asked about it, even by that reporter, her spokeswoman said, it doesn't ring a bell here, and it wasn't a significant interaction, and it was meaningless. And even the Israelis didn't respond to comment because it was meaningless. But this was shown as proof in the Times of Israel that AOC really likes Jews. It's funny you um, always see Jewish leftists who twist themselves into pretzels to prove I remember they want to prove that Linda Sarsour wasn't anti-Semitic. Ocasio-Cortez is it, and they'll always find their proof wherever they need it. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, I interrupted yeah, so, you. So you're absolutely right. And what I use that as, I, I sort of called that out, that it was just a parody of journalism. But more than that, it was an example of how people on the news side, you know, the, the news and opinions, you know, divide in journalism, have just completely given up the idea that their job is to report the facts. No. Um, and it's most people of the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, they admit it. Their job is to advance a political agenda. Uh, a lot of it has to do with just getting Trump, opposing Trump. Um, and that anything that interferes with that has to be, you know, has to be just ignored. And the greatest example of that was when the New York Post came up with this story about uh, Joe Biden's son, Hunter, and his various shenanigans, business shenanigans uh, with Ukraine and China. 
and the mainstream media just shut it down, did not report it. Now, you know, the only to the extent that it mentioned it, it was to uh, put it down with uns completely unsubstantiated uh, charges that it was Russian, you know, intelligence operation, which it was not, um, and just shut it down, just didn't want to hear it. Um, and, you know, Twitter and Facebook went further, these liberal social medias, which are the information superhighway of our time, banned mentions of banned links of the New York Post still can't get into its Twitter account because of that. Right. right. And we have journalists who supposedly care about the principles of journalism, the ethics of journalism and free speech and the First Amendment, cheering this, cheering censorship, cheering the you know, the shutting down of news about something that just is unflattering, whether you think it should change anybody's vote or not, doesn't matter. It's unflattering to Biden, so it cannot be said. Um, this is the opposite of journalism. This is not fairness. This is the opposite of journalism. Um, and it just causes, this is why people don't trust the media. This is what, this is the real threat to democracy in this country, not anything not the you know stupid things that uh, Donald Trump sometimes says or tweets. It's this attack on the freedom of the press, attack on freedom of speech by the far left and, and the mainstream left, the mainstream press. Um, and that's what we really should be worrying about. Right. Thank you so much. We're running out of time. Um, and I, I'm, I know that our listening audience would love to read and hear more. Um, so to read and learn more about Jonathan Tobin, he can be reached at jtobin at jns.org and you can follow him on facebook or twitter and uh of course read the uh, jns.org daily thank you so will, much right, uh, we will promote you on tobin. our site jonathan it was an honor to have you thank you so much thank you okay pleasure to be on all right bye-bye thank you so very much again and this is uh bayla Seabrow with alan skorsky <laughs>